Good morning, everybody. Welcome to SACPA. My name is Dwayne Pendergast, and I'm your moderator today. I'll start with some housekeeping tasks, which I think are kind of important because we seem to have a lot of newcomers. Now, the microphones are now on. Please turn off your cell phones. I think I did that. There's a basket. This is the way the payment is done. There's a basket on your table to collect a $10 payment for lunch. And uh, everyone but the speaker needs to deposit $10 in the, in the basket. And will someone at the table confirm that the total is correct, please? Now, I should also point out that we start out with a 25 to 30 minute presentation, then we have lunch, then a 30 minute question period starting about 1 p.m. Now I'd like to introduce our topic for today. I watch a television channel called Oasis HD, Love Nature. It's billed as providing clutter-free programming, showcasing the endless beauty of the natural world. And for the most part, it does. Unfortunately, almost every program brings up some looming disaster said to be due to climate change that is the fault of humanity. And that could be pretty depressing if one were to believe every word. There are reasons, though, to believe that postulated planetary doom may not be imminent. Dr. Tim Ball, our speaker today, is skeptical of many claims made in the name of climate change science. His presentations have been enthusiastically received. I guess this is an example. He earned his PhD from St. Mary's College of the University of London in 1982 with a specialization in climatology. His talk today is titled, Climate Calamity, Fact or Fantasy? Dr. Ball, podium is yours. Thank you for this opportunity to come to Lethbridge. You know, I haven't been here for a while, and always come down and talk to the uh, irrigation farmers and the farmers in general about what's going on. Of course, they're more directly concerned with climate and climate change than virtually anybody. I want to thank the Friends of Science who uh, sponsored my uh, travel here. Friends of Science are a group of, of retired uh, specialists, engineers, hydrologists, and so on who I met several years ago because they were very concerned about what was going on with climate science. And um, they decided that they would stick strictly to the science and not get involved in the politics of climate science. And I commended that view, but of course over the years it's become more and more a political issue. And so what I want to do today is to give you a story of what I've observed through my 40 years of studying weather and climate. I got interested by flying search and rescue in the Arctic for five years, and of course then also instructed in weather and climate in the military 
and then I lost my flying category because of hearing loss. I went back to school and got into weather and climate. And of course, at that time, it wasn't an issue in the general public concern, but it was an issue as far as science was concerned. Because from 1940 to 1980, the global temperature was going down. And the concern was global cooling, we're heading for another ice age, and they were talking about what's going to happen to Canada in terms of colder temperatures and crop production and so on. And of course, I was as opposed to that as I have been since 1980, when the trend that was going that way is now going the other way, global warming. And I want to tell you that in my life, I've lived through five climate changes. Before the war, the temperature was going up. After the war, the temperature was going down. From 1980 to 2000, it was going up. And from 2000 to the present, it's going down again. It's like house prices. They go up and down. And climate change is normal. So when I was called a climate change denier with all of the Holocaust connotations of that term, deliberate, by the way, um, I pointed out that I'm anything but a climate change denier. And people in Lethbridge who've heard me talk know that I've been pointing out that climate changes all the time. So what I want to do is tell you the story about, about what I think is the biggest deception in history. Some people call it a hoax. It's not a hoax. It's a deliberate deception, a de deliberate attempt to lead people into believing that humans are causing global warming initially and now global climate change. I think everybody should ask themselves a single question. This is a, a very simple diagram of the atmosphere, the sunlight coming in here, and heat coming in from the oceans, and the movement of everything in between. Now, systems analysts will look at this and say, yeah, now I start to see how complex the weather is. When you stand outside and feel the weather, you're experiencing everything from cosmic radiation in deep space to heat coming off the bottom of the ocean and everything in between. It's an incredibly complex system. But what have we done? We focused on one thing, one CO2. This is like you going to the doctor and the doctor said, well, you need a complete physical. But we're going to save time and money. I'm just going to focus on that little ward on your left arm. And then he writes a report saying, well, yeah, you know, Dr. Ball, you're a little brown, wizened guy with prone to cancer. That's essentially what they've done by getting the focus on CO2. And, of course, you have to start asking yourself, why? Why has the CO2 become the focus for the climate science? This is the current global temperature. Um, it's been adjusted, but this is the one that everybody accepts. You can see it's 1979, global temperatures going up, and then from about 2000, you see temperatures uh, starting to decline. And of course, at that point, the CO2 level kept going up, but the temperature started going down. And of course, their hypothesis said, oh, if the CO2 increases, the temperature will go up. And then lo and behold, Mother Nature wasn't playing the game. And so at that point, they stopped talking about global warming, and they started talking about climate change. They moved the goalposts. But only politicians can move the goalposts. Scientists can move the goalposts. You have to look at the science as it is. You have to explain that as it is. So you see uh, the trend that's going on. By the way, the, the trend is continuing to cool. I expect it to get much cooler by the year 2030, yet the government's preparing for warming. 
Just to illustrate the idea, here's that same blue line plotted on here. This is uh, temperatures from the satellite, which are showing a difference. And then this is the predictions of the government, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This is their forecasts. Now, I want you to think about this. And I always tell farmers, at Phone Environment Canada, say, what's it going to be like a year from now? They say, we don't do long-term forecasts. Phone them the next day, say, what's it going to be like 100 years from now? Warmer? I thought you didn't do long-term forecasts. There's some disconnect here. They can't even accurately forecast the weather out 72 hours. And yet they've got the whole world convinced that their forecasts of, of future temperatures and, and climate are, are valid. So here you see, even they do actually scenarios. They don't even attempt a single forecast. This is their lowest forecast. That's the average and that's the highest one. Notice that the temperature hasn't even reached their lowest one. Science is about prediction. If your prediction is wrong, your science is wrong, period. And that's what's going on here. And here you can see, there's the same temperature graphs, but now we've plotted over it the CO2 from Mount Aloha. And they say, oh, the CO2 temperature is going up, therefore the temperature should go up. The fact that this line follows their prediction line shows that it's dominant. It's the major factor in their computer models, which say that if CO2 goes up, the temperature should go up. It isn't happening. It simply isn't happening. So you see, as I said, Mother Nature not playing the game. So the question is that they're cooking the books. They're presenting you with completely false science. And the question is, what's the motive? Why would scientists go along with this? Why would governments go along with this? And this is what I want to, to look at, because I say I've watched this for, for over 30 years. This is the Club of Rome. And the Club of Rome is an organization that, that took the Malthus idea that the world's population would outgrow the food supply. They took that idea, and then they said, not only would it outgrow the food supply, but it would outgrow all the resources on the planet. So the problem is population. We've got too many people on the planet. We've got to get rid of some of the people. I like that idea as long as I get to decide. <laughs> Probably got too many of them, not enough of those. You know, and you start to think about this. And um, so they said, in searching for a new enemy to unite us. You see, there's nothing, no better way of uniting people. In, in the 30s on the radio, they did a program of Martian invasion. And everybody was in a panic, but they were all talking to each other. There's nothing better to get people talk to each other than an outside threat. So we need a new enemy to unite us. We came up with the idea that the threat of global warming would fit the bill. The real enemy then is humanity itself. We believe humanity requires a common motivation, a common adversary, in order to realize world government. It does not matter if this common enemy is real one or invented for the purpose. And here's Senator Tim Worth. We've got to ride the global warming issue. Even if the theory of global warming is wrong, we will be doing the right thing. Do you know what he did? When James Hansen of NASA appeared before the Senate, they went in the night before, shut off the air conditioning and opened all the windows, and they selected the day for the hearing as the hottest day on the record. That was all done to deliberately stress the point of warming. It's hard to believe that this kind of level of manipulation has been going on. Here's the guy that's coordinated it all. This is Morris Strong. Albertans are very familiar with Mr. Strong. And he's now living in China. He's born in Oak Lake, Manitoba. And he said, isn't the only hope for the planet that the industrialized nations collapse? Isn't it our responsibility to bring that about? 
Strong was using the UN as a platform to sell a global environmental crisis in the global governance agenda. I want you to think about how would you shut down an industrialized nation? That's pretty bold ambition. Think about that nation like an engine of a car running on fossil fuels. You can squeeze the fuel line, the engine will stop. But if you do that, people scream. Look at what happens in the U.S. when the gas price goes up. You're all out in arms. But if you show that the byproduct of that engine is causing the climate to change, that then is how they came to focus on CO2, because it's the byproduct of those fossilized fuels. So this was the agenda that, that uh, Morris Strong set about uh, setting up. How did he do that? Well, in that interview where he said the industrialized nations are the problem with um, Elaine Dewar in a book called Cloak of Green, she said to him, you've got this big idea, why don't you run for politics? He said, you can't do anything as a politician. I'm going to the UN where I can get all the money I want and not be accountable to anybody. So he went to the United Nations and he set up the political side of it, the United Nations Environment Program. And of course, the beauty of this is, hey, good idea, environment, yes, we all, we're all environmentalists. We all should care about the environment. No question about it. But there's a certain group of people saying, oh, we care about the environment, the rest of you don't. You've got to stop living the way you're living. You've got to listen to us. It's control. And so he set up the political side of it to the United Nations Environment Program, Rio 1992, and the anniversary is coming up next month, Rio Plus 20, where they'll try and re reaffirm all of this. And then he set up, through the World Meteorological Organization, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So he controlled the science and he controlled the politics in, in that way, uh, putting it together. Now what they did was, this is how he wrote what's called Agenda. Agenda 21 was the report out of the 1992, it means the agenda for the 21st century. There are about 20, 37 principles. This is principle 15. In order to protect the environment, the precautionary approach should be widely applied by the states according to their capabilities. When there are threats of serious or irreversible damage, lack of full, full scientific certainty shall not be used as a reason for postponing cost effect. In other words, it doesn't matter if you don't have the science. If you think it's a potential damage to the environment, you can do it. In other words, what he did here was he effectively wrote out the science side of it. And of course, as uh, this uh, uh, person said, it's a naked, incorrect application of the precautionary principle. Proponents of the precautionary principle are trying to smuggle in a default position. The environment trumps all other values. And of course, they're finding out that that's simply not the case. <coughs> they narrowed the focus. I served on commissions of inquiry, and I used to think they were great things. Until the very first one I served on, I realized that we think, oh, commission of inquiry. The governor appointing a, a, a totally um, non-biased, non-political group. And everybody said, well, that's good. Got the politics out of it. First one I was appointed to, we were given terms of reference by the politicians. The terms of reference were so narrow that we couldn't even get the data we need to solve the problem. That's how the politicians control the commissions of inquiry. And by the way, if you want to follow this on a large scale, go and look at the Kennedy assassination, where Judge uh, uh, Warren was appointed to look at that. And they said, why didn't you look at the mafia connection in Jack Ruby in Dallas? He said, it wasn't in my terms of reference. In other words, he was told, 
stay away from that. And of course, what's that led to? All the conspiracy uh, arguments that you see. So they, they limited the focus, and here's their definition of climate change. A change of climate attributed directly or indirectly to human activity is also the composition of the global atmosphere, which is in addition to natural climate variability observed over periods of time. Well, that sounds all very nice, but what they're doing is they're saying, no, only look at human causes of climate change. But here's the problem. You cannot determine that unless you know the amount and cause of natural climate. If you don't know how much it varies naturally, you can't possibly identify the portion that is human. But that's what they're claiming that they can do. That's what they're telling you they've been able to achieve. Simply not true. Scientific misdirection. This is another example of Morris Strong and his organizational ability. The science report, 600 people. The, second, the other two groups, working group two and three, take the results of this group, and then they look at the impacts of that climate change. And then these people propose things the government should do to offset that climate change. But this report is actually only written by about 12 people. And here's another thing that Morris Strong did. They finished the science report, set it aside, and then they produced the summary for policymakers. And the summary for policymakers is released at least seven months before the science report. And it's the one that all the media look at. This is like a, an executive of a company doing, writing the final re, uh, report, or the final conclusions of the report, and then saying to the employees, go and find the data to prove that the my, my conclusions are correct. It's completely backwards, but that's the way they've done it in their rules. And so you can see here that the 1,900 of these people are just simply accepting what 12 people here say. But of course, this is the consensus. Oh, the majority of scientists agree. No, they don't. They set it up so that that's the way it works. These are the human forces of the climate. And it doesn't matter if you can't see the fine print. You never read it anyway, so why start now? <laughs> but these, these, are, these are the uh, variables that they look at. And you notice they got CO2 right at the top. And up here on this side, this is the 2001 report, it says LOSU, level of scientific understanding. Look at it, high, high, medium, low, medium, low, 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 low. So in other words, for only two of the variables that they got, they claim a high scientific understanding. By 2007, because they realized that this was showing that they didn't know what they were doing, it disappeared. Okay, it's not in the 2007 report. Suddenly, the fact that they're admitting they don't know, well, we can't put that in our report. And uh, so they, it's an, an indication. Just to give you an example, this is something called albedo. When the sunlight comes in, it strikes the surface, and a certain portion of it goes back out to, uh, out to space. It doesn't heat the Earth. Okay? And, and so uh, what I plotted on here this red line shows you what they claim is the amount of change caused by humans, and yet this is one simple variable that very few people know about, albedo, and look at the variability of that over that period of record. Right? It's over 10 watts per square meter, and they're claiming that humans have about a 1.8 watts per square meter change. So just one simple variable. They don't even include this in their models not even included in their models. And just to give you an idea about CO2, here's the total atmosphere, here's the greenhouse gases, this portion blown up, 
and there's the portion of it that's human. Do you know that CO2 is less than 4% of the greenhouse gases? They don't even mention water vapor, it's 95%. Not even mentioned. How can you do this? And the answer is because you want to keep the focus on CO2. And here you can see it even better, water vapor, 95%. You know that around here. What, what happens at this time of year? Clear skies, the heat escapes, the temperature drops. You've got cloud cover, temperature doesn't drop as much because the water vapor is holding the heat in. Farmers are familiar with that, same in the fall with frost. But this part's virtually ignored. And then when you see, this is a government, the American government, uh, they say greenhouse gases and aerosols. See, uh, but that tiny percent of your trace gases, such as carbon dioxide, they don't even mention water vapor. Down here, the atmospheric greenhouse gas is based on certain molecules, for example, carbon dioxide. Why don't you talk about the 95% of the greenhouse gases? Why do you focus on this all the time? So then when you look at their uh, title up here, it says innovate, Boy, they innovate. Incubate, yeah, they hatch the plot. And then they integrate into the science. This shows you the uh, uh, temperature that they calculated from ice cores going back 420,000 years. And I remember when this came out in 1991. Here, oh, this is it. Here's the temperature going up and down, the blue. And there's the CO2 going up and down. This is proof positive. Temperature changes, or CO2 changes, temperature changes. Within five years, we knew it was exactly the opposite. Every single record we have from any time, any duration, any part of the world, the temperature changes before the CO2. In complete contradiction to their hypothesis and what they built their models on. So you can see uh, the, the difficulty that I have. And just to illustrate the point, the point a little bit further, here, this is uh, the first 50 years of the 20th century, 1912 to 61. CO2 rose 18 parts per million, temperature went up 0.52. From, four, from 62 to 2011, CO2 went up 74 parts per million, temperature only went up 0.41. There's no correlation between temperature and CO2, despite everything they're telling you. The bigger question is, what about the precipitation? They don't even look at that. They don't even talk about precipitation. Yet for farming, that's what's important. This is how they've cooked the books. These are CO2 readings starting in 1812, because they wanted to know what the atmosphere was like. Uh, Professor Callender selected those readings, and that's been used to show that the pre-industrial level of CO2 was 270 parts per million. He ignored all of these high readings. Well, you want to start cherry-picking data? But look at what it also does. There's the trend line of CO2 in that record, but by the time he finished, look at the trend line. CO2 is increasing. All of this, this is from 1940. They've been playing this game for quite a long time. And here's, uh, here's the record of CO2 from the ice cores, the dotted line here, and then the mountain lower record on the end. But here's the actual atmospheric measurements of CO2. Look at the difference. They smoothed the curve of the CO2 record. It's a 70-year average. You never do that scientifically. It's completely wrong to put a 70-year smoothing average on. And just to illustrate, this is from 7,000 to 9,000 years ago. Here's the ice core record of CO2 levels. And here's the level measured from plant leaves, from the pores on the plants, the stomata. 
look at the difference. Here they've got about 210 parts per million, and here's the, uh, the actual showing about 310. So they argued, oh, the pre-industrial level is low, it's high now, that must be humans, and that's causing the warming. It cooked the books. It cooked the books. Computer models, it used to be, computer models have a place, it used to be garbage in, garbage out. What it is now with climate models is garbage in, gospel out. In other words, you program the computer to produce the results that you want it to produce. And of course, that's why we saw their results for so long. The computer models are, are made up of these little triangles. We got virtually no data. Let me show you. This is the number of weather stations in the world in, in up, up till 1960. Look at all the world with no weather data at all. What have you built your model on? And the answer is nothing. It's absolute nonsense. But this is what they're telling you. Oh, the models are correct and we know what's going on. Here's their own words. IPCC model limitations. Nevertheless, models still show significant errors. But that's not what it says in that policy for uh, summary for policymakers that goes out to the media. Oh yeah, we're 99% or 90% certain. Significant errors still occur. I won't go through all of these limited resolutions of models. Many of these processes are not resolved adequately by the model grid. As I say, they don't have the data, so they make it up. They call it parameterization, but it properly means we make it up. And then you say, unfortunately, the total surface heat and water fluxes, that is the energy and water going in and out of the surface, are not well observed. How can you create a model then? How can you do that? These errors in oceanic heat uptake will also have a large impact on the relativity or reliability of the sea level rise projections. But what have they been doing? What is Alvin Gordon telling you? Well, the sea level's going to rise. You know, so he buys a house on the ocean and they'll claim insurance costs. Look at them. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible what they're saying. Un unreliable from our models. I love this one. I'll, I'll, I'll skip by that. This is the one I like. Due to the computational costs associated with the requirement of a well-resolved stratosphere, the models employed for the current assessment do not generally include the QBO. It sounds like, you know, science talk to you. What they're telling you is, we haven't got enough money to, to model the stratosphere. So we left it out. You can't afford it. But those are the models that they're telling the governments of the world that they've got to put tax on you, that they've got to limit you, they've got to do this, and they've got to do that. This is their own admission. For models to simulate accurate the seasonal varying patterns of precipitation, they must correctly simulate a number of processes that are difficult to evaluate at a global scale. In other words, we don't have the data. Major emissions, what have they left out? How many of you know that the orbit of the Earth around the sun is constantly changing? That changes the amount of energy that comes into the Earth. The tilt of the Earth is constantly changing, which changes the amount of energy. The date on which the equinoxes occur is constantly changing. That causes a change in the amount of energy. Combine those three. Whoops, sorry. Combine those three, and this is the total change in amount of energy from the sun over the last million years. It's 100 watts per square meter change in the amount of solar energy. Uh, just for interest, I put on. That's what they claim. See that little dot there? That's what they claim humans are having. In fact. This is not in their models. 
This is not in the computer model. They say, oh, no, not significant. It's 100 times more than human effect that you're claiming. And then we know that sunspots are related to temperature. We didn't have a mechanism. Then in 1991, uh, Svensmark and, and uh, Erickson came up with this uh, explanation of how these sunspots vary with global temperature. And here we're now in very low sunspot numbers. The sun is quieting down. This is why I'm predicting we're heading for more cooling. None of this is in their computer models. None of this is in their reports. They don't even look at sunspots. Not even included. It's like saying, I'm going to look at my car, but I'm not going to bother looking at the engine because it's not significant. That's about how bad this is. And by the way, to show you, that changing sunspot is affected by the magnetic sphere of the sun, which determines the low cloud cover. Here's the low cloud cover in, in the blue, and then the red is the cosmic ray from space. Remember I talked about that earlier. Look at the correlation, variation in cosmic rays and the, and the cloud cover on the Earth. So the cloud cover is like putting up a screen in your greenhouse. Okay, data. In his autobiography, Hubert Lambs, it was clear that the first and greatest need was to establish the facts of the past record of the natural climate and times before any side effects of human activities could well be important. The situation is worse now. That's the diagram I showed you before. That's the weather stations in 1960. Here's the number of weather stations reached a peak in 1960. We've got less weather stations around the world now than we had in 1960. They closed weather stations all over the world. Why? Because they thought the satellite would provide the information, and it doesn't. Satellite can't see through clouds. It can't tell you if it rained or snowed or what precipitation occurred. And so what did that do? Here's, this, uh, this is the decline in the number of weather stations, particularly after 1990. And this is the temperature. So as you reduce the number of weather stations you've got, the temperature goes up. There's nothing to do with reality. It has everything to do with the government closing weather stations. And why did they close the weather stations? Because they spent billions on climate change and convincing you that the end of the world is coming. And selling you with all sorts of plans in agriculture of, of, of controlling climate change. Here's Canada. Here's the weather stations decline starting in 1960. And look at the drop after 1990. And what does that end up doing? Here's the, the diamonds are the weather stations that they use to calculate Canada's average temperature. There's one station up here, Eureka, that covers the whole of the Arctic. One station. And why did they choose that station? Because I've known since 1968 that Eureka is an unusually warm site in the Arctic. It was deliberately chosen. It doesn't represent the Arctic at all. Yet it is now left as the only source of data for the whole of, of northern Canada. That's what they've been doing. And they've been also adjusting the record. This is Maastricht in Holland. Here's the temperature as it was recorded. Here's how it's now in the record. What they've done is lower the old record to make the increasing temperature look greater than it actually was. This is New Zealand. Got to finish up here. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, okay, I'll finish up in a couple of minutes. This is, New, this is New Zealand. Here's the actual record, and here's after adjustment. We've now gotten the New Zealand government in court challenging them what they've done to the record and how they've adjusted. This has been done with every national weather record around the world. Manipulation of the IPCC reports. I just got about a minute to finish up. 
This is a this is a, a record that was put in one of the reports by Benjamin Sander. Below it, you see the actual record, and you can see here how he selected just a portion of that graph to make it look like the temperature was going up. He denied it was deliberate, but it's obvious it was deliberate. And of course, uh, he also changed the record from no study today is positively attributed all food to deserve to man-made causes, and he changed that to now points to a discernible human influence. <coughs> he did that on his own. He did that on his own. When they called him on it, he just said, oh, it was an accident. There was no accident. He knew exactly what he was doing. And I've got to finish up here. We can go through all these things. This is a problem. But just, I'll just show you a couple of things. This is a problem warmer when the Vikings were around. And, of course, they were saying it was warmer today than it's ever been. So they said they had to get rid of this record. What to do about the medieval warm period that bumped in, in the Middle Ages? And uh, the David Deming sent me this. And he thought I was one of them, someone who would pervert science to the service of social and political causes. One of them let his guard down. A, a major person working in the area of climate change, a woman, sent an astonishing email that said, we have to get rid of the medieval war period. <laughs> they rewrote history. Literally, rewrote history. And of course, you can see that here, the hockey stick, famous hockey stick. And then they said that the temperature had gone up 0.6 degrees. They forgot to tell you it was plus or minus 0.2. So that's a range of 4 degrees Celsius, 66% error. But that's in the official record. And when the professor that produced that number said, uh, would you show us the number and how you achieved it? He said, we have 25 years or so invested in work. Why should I make the data available to you when you're able to try and find something wrong with it? <laughs> He's now lost the data. He's now lost the data. I mean, I could go on and on with stories like this about how they've corrupted and so uh, we will, uh, I'll just, can I just finish with this one last quote? <laughs> I okay, I'll just leave this. This is a, a professor, uh, Klaus Eckhart, Klaus, he said, 10 years ago, I simply parroted what the IPCC told us. Um, but one day I started checking the facts and data. First I started with a sense of doubt, then it became outrage when I discovered that much of what the IPCC and the media were telling us was sure nonsense. It was not even supported by any scientific fact measurements. To this day, I still feel shame that as a scientist, I made presentations of their science without first checking it. Scientifically, it is sheer absurdity to think we can get uh, a nice climate by turning a CO2 adjustment on. That's a guy who spent his whole life studying it, was taken in, so he started to go look at what the science was, as I have been doing for the last 40 years. And I thank you for this opportunity.